Today, I'm speaking with activist Jenna Arnold. Oprah has called Jenna one of the hundred awakened leaders who are using their voice and talent to elevate humanity. Jenna recently wrote a book called Raising Our Hands, How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. Please welcome Jenna Arnold. Thank you so much for for joining me today. I'm so thrilled and honored. Thanks for having me. So I always start the conversation with the question, what do you believe? It's a really good question, and um, it's an intimidating question because it's surely one that I could answer differently throughout the day. Um, You know, when I'm holding my babies, it's nothing else matters but this type of joy. When I look at the headlines, it's we have an opportunity to change something, and I know we all want that. but I think deep, deep down, my belief is that humanity wants to be able to hold the grace and humility and compassion for each other that they hope to extend to themselves. And that once we can get out of our own way, we could probably inch closer to some greater universal truth that I don't know if I'll see at some point in my lifetime, but um, every religion and philosopher and poet and lover, like deep in the, you know, super in love state knows that there is um, another place that we can all get to. Mm, That's beautiful. Um, So how do you every day sort of, think about, you know, with, with your kids even, you know, this thought of, 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 you know, how we treat each other. How do you teach your kids, you know, that, that thought, that feeling? It's a hard thing to teach. And I've been asked so consistently, how do you talk about social equity with a three-year-old and a five-year-old? And how do you talk about um, white privilege. How do you bring up white privilege with a kid? And I sort of stare at those questions blindly because I'm like, I don't know. How do you teach Christianity or Judaism or atheism or like sharing? Mm. You don't sit a kid down and like, okay, now when one kid wants your pink Lego and there isn't enough to go around, this is how you're going to handle it. You tend to teach sharing like in the midst of the opportunity. Mm. And So I think there's something really important in taking that weight off of our shoulders to be able to say, okay, now we're going to fabricate moments to talk about humility and grace Mm -hmm. and just take advantage of those moments when they present themselves because they all present themselves consistently all across the board. Um, We are one of what was, I think, almost 6 million people in um, the Northeast that didn't have power last week. And because of uh, tropical hurricane store I'm not admittedly sure what the call of what the um whether it was a tropical storm or a hurricane um but I was sort of making fun of my dad and my husband for like looping on this storm that was coming because we've seen much bigger ones but it really took out a lot of electricity in a lot of the suburban parts of the country of uh, the northeast and we were one of those homes that had nominal electricity for like five or six days and we were fine we had a generator that kept our refrigerator on but 
when we went to, when I went to go put the kids to sleep at night, um, there was no electricity to read them storybooks, mm. and they were like moaning about it one night, and I was like, oh this is a moment. I'm going to lean into this one real hard. And I talked about the currency of electricity and I pulled up on my phone, um, images of kids who read by lanterns, um, who do homework by, by lanterns. Um, it was hard for me to find white kids doing homework by lanterns. So, you know, my kids are at the age where they're not literate. So I was able to you know, then type into the Google search image, white kids holding up lanterns. And so this idea of like showing my kids that electricity is something that's um, a valuable asset for the advancement of themselves. Um, And it actually, and and then I sort of, I went even further and I explained to my daughter ever, who's five, I said, okay, but I just want you to know there are some kids who have electricity right now and they get to read as many storybooks as they want and you don't have any. Right. How does that feel? And mm. she started crying. And I was like, I'm not going to fix that tear. I'm going to let her experience it. And then I'm going to be able to reference back to that bad boy whenever I want. And so this idea of like being able to create moments to have these conversations aren't, you know, oftentimes people ask me how and when, and I'm like, I don't know if you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus, like, when do you talk about Jesus? Like, I guess around Christmas, but do you do it on like Tuesday at three thirty when you're trying to find right. the soccer cleat? Like, I don't. Right. Know. <laughs> right. Um, so, right. so there's just in life, there's so many ways to reposition the sort yeah. of thinking. Absolutely. I mean, speaking of of what's happening right now in your book that I read, which is incredible and so necessary, and uh, I mean, just absolutely sobering. Um, raising our hands, um, for those who may not have read the book, can you tell us a little bit about, about the book and what compelled you to write it? About four years ago, um, I was looking for this book to read Mm. and I couldn't find it on the shelves. I had spent my, um, academic career studying foreign policy diplomacy, peace education. I traveled the world and spent a lot of time in developing countries. And, um, and I still clearly was missing something. Mm. Still clearly missing something. And it was because of so many um, generous friends and um, activists of color who I have relationships with who over the years kept like flicking me and being like, you don't get it. Mm. You don't see it. And um, it took me a while to see what they were talking about. Mm. And, and I was one of the organizers of the Women's March. And when I stood on stage and looked out at the sea of pink hats, it, just from a qualitative perspective, it seemed like most of the people who were marching were white. But yet a month earlier, or two and a half months earlier, white women had elected Donald Trump, who is not a candidate or I think even a civilian whose priorities or values align with mine, Um, surely not in a position as a leader of a country. But um, I couldn't quite reconcile what I was seeing on the streets with the numbers that I saw coming out of the voting booths with like huge important asterisk here, like exit poll data is not accurate. It's like Mm -hmm. people standing on you know, standing there with clipboards, like the human error 
potential there is just so huge. Yes. But 53%, it's considered based on exit poll data that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. But even if you give like a 10% margin on either side, which is not academically allowed, it's still 44 or 64%. And it's just too much. Yeah. Like it just makes sense. Right. So right. I was, I was trying to figure out how I got to my, the year that I did in my life with the hustle that I put into my career, into building my life, into building relationships. And I still was missing the mark. Wow. Wow. I mean, uh, it's incredible. Uh, what, are the, what do you think, or what are the most uncomfortable truths that we mm -hmm. as white American women are largely at fault for? Well, the fault word is one that I would be careful with okay. because, um, yes, this is one of the complicated truths. I'd like to call it the sacred end, um, mm. where it's both our fault for sure, because the what happened to George Floyd at the end of May is a rerun. It wasn't a new murder. Um, it's been happening on this plot of land for thousands of years, not just not just when the middle passage got up and running. Um, so, so there's no excuse for not having seen it or talked about it or understood it or shown up in the streets with fury um, like we have over the past couple of months. Um, but, but at the same time, we have read textbooks that don't tell us the truth. Yes. We often pray under the roofs of many types of religious institutions that bring beautiful things into our lives, um, but that also probably don't tell us the truth in ways that it could. Mm. Um, we have, um, we turn on the television, um, and I'm not going to get into the three networks that we have to choose from, because I think people now know that they're very biased, but, yeah. you know, we'll you know, when you've had a rough day and you turn on a reality television show and you see nothing but materialistic objectives and goals, you know, you spend your time, you spend your life trying to get that same square footage in your closet or yes. that body type. And so there's been enough opportunities for us not to see the narrative isn't really ever been put on a silver platter for us. Um, and I think that, I think that sort of whole notion of like, the fact that we've been so dependent and casually eating off that silver platter, that is our fault. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm just curious, you know, at this point, I mean, what do we do from here? You know, you, you talk a lot about, you know, in the book about how American white women are, um, uh, you know, you traveled all over listen, you know, in listening circles and speaking to white American women. I mean, what was the most surprising perspective that you encountered? I've been getting this question a lot and I haven't come up with anything more than this one beat, which is, has what was the most surprising to me, which is how dangerous and obnoxious the progressive white elite can be. And I've, very quickly put myself and all of the friends that I choose to have in my life um, into that category. And um, so many scholars and activists for decades had said the most dangerous demo are the progressive elite who are often quiet and complacent in ways that other 
demographics aren't. Um, and, and I saw that in my listening circles, which uh, is where I hosted all the research for the book, Raising Your Hand. Yes. So I saw a, a lot of progressive elites sort of performing wokeness because they didn't want to admit to themselves, most importantly, that they had work to do because, um, you know, we, and I'm using quotes in that, um, we elected a black president in 2008. So racism is over and we have friends of color and there's a Muslim family that lives in our cul-de-sac and we don't see color. Oh, but wait, maybe now we do. And we've marched yeah. and we've, you know, donated to the ACLU. So like, we're done. Mm. And, and that mindset has allowed corporations and medical institutions and academic communities to flourish and keep systems propped up. I mean, you even see it with who got the PPP loans from the mm. government. Yes. It was a bunch of companies mm. Mm -hmm. that are run by people who were really fucking pissed off. Sorry if I'm not allowed yeah. to curse. You can curse. Curse, curse, curse. They were really pissed off about 45, and they're so quick to be like, oh, damn him. But right. like, the people I know who got the PPP, mm, I'm not sure they needed it as much as like the dry cleaner down the street. Oh, for sure. But they could afford the lawyers and they were banking at Silicon Valley Bank and like they were able to get in 30 seconds before it went on live. Mm. It went live to the rest of the world. So it's sort of like the progressive elites who are like, I've, you know, traveled to third world countries or I do community service or I host political candidates in my house and fundraisers and I'm philanthropic and I buy tables, but like, oh. no, like you just took money out of like small shopkeepers hands for your tech startup when you weren't even raising, but you're saying you were because it was free money from the government. And so it's like that kind of behavior is why progressive elites are extraordinarily dangerous. Wow. I mean, Oh, and that was the most surprising. And that was the most surprising. Yeah. Because I'm, I exist in that community. That's mm -hmm. my world. Those are my people. Um, and like some of the most brilliant nonprofits that I've worked with aspire like they've all been founded by people who come from that demographic so this idea of like well they're only in it for themselves like yes i know again there's that say that that sacred and but um but i think there's you know if you're an elite right now and you had a babysitter or a housekeeper or a doorman or um, I don't know, stopped using Uber because you were able to be in your house in Montauk. Um, and, you know, have you really sent money back to the people who are hand to mouth? Like, do you really know what's happening there um, right now? So, so it's complicated. It is complicated. I mean, I, I see it as your book is like a shift in consciousness. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, you know, you, you, can't not, not, you can't read this book and not walk away saying, I'm, I know, I, I, you know, I, this is me. You know, this is, you can't not identify as a white woman parts of this book that, you know, are very clear. And I'm just curious in terms of consciousness, like, have we, have we lost that? I mean, do we need to reevaluate our, like you say in the book, core values? 
Oh, I, I think we have to re, I don't even think it's a reevaluation of a core value. I think it's like a redefinition of humanity. Mm. Absolutely. Like people are always like, well, I don't know when to step in and to speak up and I'm told to show up and then I'm told to go away. And it's like, mm. yes, you can do both. All of those things are true. And sometimes you're meant to speak up and sometimes you're meant to shut up. And you kind of sort of know when to do that in other places of your life. Like you can just take the temperature of any moment in a social justice conversation that if you're learning right now and there's no, and you're the student, like just be quiet. If you're the only person at right. the country club cocktail party and you're speaking on behalf of trans rights, like you should probably like raise your voice, like a few octaves. Like you just kind of know when you're the voice of reason, yeah. right? And right. when you're the student, um, but but this idea of, so we constantly question when we are and aren't supposed to do things. But when you see a drowning child, like you don't really question whether you're supposed to save that kid's life. Yeah. Right? Like that's not something that you contemplate in the minute. Right. You do what it takes to save a drowning child's life. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's a part of me that's like, I don't think we all, like there's an innateness um, and there's just a, like a mammal species instinct talk about like what I believe, but like, I know that I think like almost a hundred percent of humanity and fine. If you want to be skeptical, we'll call it 98%. And if you want to be even more skeptical, we can call it 91% of people yeah. are going to innately try to save a drowning child. And if 91% of humanity believes that we need to preserve life yeah. and we need to take care of it, <clears throat> believes that we need to preserve life and that we need to take care of it and it is our responsibility to protect each other particularly the most vulnerable like I don't know maybe our systems can reflect that mm. and maybe the way we swipe our credit card can also start reflecting that so I you know this idea of like a core value I don't know what to do with that language because like my core value is to be healthy and to like work out but let me tell you how many times I like don't get out of bed early and work out yeah Right. And so I think it's so much deeper than that. I think it's so much deeper and can get pulled into a like species existence lane. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there has to be some sort of, I mean, what's, what about intuition? I mean, how much do you yeah. rely on your intuition? Oh, we've lost that skill. Yeah. Sorry. We have that skill. We, we don't know how to take its temperature. Mm. Yeah. So, so that's a, that's a thank you to all the um, indigenous communities and to our ancestors from thousands and tens of thousands of years ago who knew how to take the temperature of their intuition to survive long enough for us to have Wi-Fi and gel manicures. <laughs> so what we had then we still have now we've just forgotten how to take its temperature yeah. um and you know there's there's 
multi-trillion dollar industries like the wellness industry that's all about like okay here's how you do it it's yeah. yoga then the kale smoothie then the rose quartz crystal on your forehead go right, right? so like there's that. just a lot of a lot of right. um in you know that industry while trying to help us find ourselves is also incredibly dangerous and yes. social justice but we're not talking about that right now yeah um, you can find that in chapter five of raising your hands um <laughs> but but there is this, I think there is this larger moment and movement to like get back to who we are. And, and, you know, I will, you know, when you're doing something wrong, you know, when you're about to post yeah. something on social media and you're like, mm, this doesn't yeah. feel right. Or like you said something that you shouldn't have, that you're right. sort of walk away and you're like, shit, that, okay, let me start convincing myself why I was right. <laughs> right yes. like you you know you know those moments you have them you have them and again going back to like a drowning child if you're listening to this and you're like yep I'm trying to help a drowning child like that that instinct is not a learned behavior that came with our package in this in the week when we were talking a lot about police reform one of my friends posted, an activist who's on the front lines of these conversations, posted something about an eight-point police reform strategy. Mm -hmm. And she posted it on Tuesday, and on like Wednesday afternoon, I went to go get it and repost it. And I couldn't find it, so I texted her. I was like, hey, where's that thing? And she's like, oh, we pulled it down because point four and point seven we actually don't think are sustainable. And so instead of being like, oh, well, then forget it. We can never figure out police reform, and if you don't have the answers, I'm out now. Right. Instead of like throwing my hands up, which of course I wanted to do, being like, what do you mean we don't have a plan right now? Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. I'm going to continue to watch. Let me know when that plan comes out. And if it's eight points or if it's 19 points, like I'm all eyes. You guys, you experts do your thing and I'm not turning away. Right. And so this idea of like, we have to be allowed to be human yeah. in this process of this great, very overdue reckoning that is happening in this country. Um, we need to do away with standards and do away with bars of like, well, you have to do this or you have to read these books or you have to listen to this podcast. Like there's no podcast, book, conversation, drug, like documentary that's going to do what we all wish we could that I was looking for four years ago when I was like, where's that turnkey? Yeah. It's going to help me actually see what it is that I clearly don't. And that's going to help me get clarity on how I got to this point in my life with the level of ignorance that I had. Right. Um, and listen, I'm, I say I'm in first grade on this stuff and I might graduate to second at some point in my life. And I wrote a 380 page book on this subject. It's, it's incredible. Like y'all have no idea. We can't even walk yet. I mean, and, and the amount of references is incredible. Your book is... Oh my God. Let me just tell you that when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was save the rainforest. And now I have a 380-page book that has 40 pages of references. My, mom, my dad's like, where is that whole thing about saving the rainforest? I'm like, I know. I can't really <laughs> myself. Which again, oh. it's just an opportunity to say, whoops. Yeah. I do care about the rainforest yeah. and there's 40 pages of sources because I want to make sure people know like where to get more information if they're curious about diving into a rabbit hole. Incredible. Wow. I mean, you, you, you have accomplished so much in your career 
And I'm, I'm so curious, like, what's, what's been the greatest moment for you? I mean, what, what oh do you God. feel is the most defining moment? Oh, I thought you were going to be like, what's the greatest driver? And I was going to be like my ego. Well, I mean, hey, we, what's the, I'd love to hear that as well. <laughs> my ego, obviously, and right. type A, and because um, I was told that there was a lot to be done in a public space. Um, right. And so go do it. But, but in your question, what am I most proudest of, which I rarely, I never get that question. Thank you so much for asking it. Mm. And it would hands down, I'm going to get emotional. It would be as when I was a first grade teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm most proud of my elementary students. I love that. And I'm most proud of myself when I was in that elementary school classroom. Mm. Like a year ago, even though they're like 25 years old now there's still only six in my head wow. and um and I feel like I left the classroom like a year ago um and I think about them all the time I miss my students so much um but I'm most proud in watching my six-year-olds because I own them still apparently um <laughs> watch their wheels turn like I had a principal at this elementary school that I taught at in LA in LAUSD at Overland Avenue Elementary School for those of you who are in LA um and I was a first grade teacher and at the time the school was going through a series of principals like every quarter and um I don't actually know why but the principals never paid attention to what I was doing so I sort of just closed my door to that classroom and did whatever I wanted. And like, I was teaching religion in the school when I wasn't even allowed, like in public school, I was like talking about Buddhism and we were making mandalas and we were like meditating in the classroom. All things that were like probably not as accurate to Buddhism and you know, the Tibetan culture as I think now I would make sure they were. But I was definitely like, let's talk. Like my, my students got these things called Buddha points. So if I saw them picking up litter on the class in, in on the what playground, or if like they were helping a classmate like unpack a backpack. I mean, it was I was like really commercializing and using but that's anyway. That's um, great. But when I saw their wheels turn and spin and when I saw kids with like angst and frustration with themselves mm. and I was intimately familiar with some of the things that were happening at home when I saw like their compassion flourish and when I saw them start like quoting Gandhi or like those kind of things I was like oh my god this is so all worth it I'm so proud of them I mean I don't have the same pride with my kids because like come hell or high water my children are going to like give a shit about the world. Um, yes. But like with my students who, you know, like don't owe me anything. Um, and when I mean, oh, like, you know, again, my kids are going to have for something to the world and their moms can be paying attention to them like a hawk over the next series of decades so as we can feel bad for them for like a half a second but you know the drill yeah. um but my students who like didn't owe me anything like when they just I saw them get kinder to themselves and I mm. saw them enjoy caring for each other and I and was really proud of that it's incredible oh how lucky they are to have you as a teacher well how lucky I was to have them Really? As my teachers, obviously. Interesting. Great point. Well, I'm, I am curious now that you, now the book is out there and, you know, what, what do you want to have happen with this? I mean, what's, 
is this a, is this a new movement that you're starting? I mean, is this something that, what do you want to see happen? What's the next step? Really good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, coming back to the shtick of this podcast of what do I believe? Mm. You know, my belief is that we can catapult ourselves further, not in a baby step metric, but again, going back to the police reform example, I never in my life thought we'd be talking about police reform. Maybe at some point in my kids' lives, but like not mine. And we did it in three weeks. Mm. And again, still so much more to figure out, many decades ahead of us. Yeah. But, but this idea of like, see, we can catapult. We can catapult some of this discussion and um, iteration and betterness and more helpfulness and compassion and love. Like we can take huge steps forward, right? This was my whole thesis when I was writing this book of like, well, I know where my ignorances were. Um, and if I can maybe just lay them out really quick, I think like I can get lots of white ladies to read like three pages of my ignorances and not have to take the three years that I took to learn them. And we can just like scooch forward real quick so I can catch them up to me. Um, and so yeah, I I would I don't think we'll ever be able to measure the impact of this book. Mm. I don't think we'll ever be able to measure the impact of my work. I mean, people will say, "Oh, you're an activist or you're a disruptor in the midst of the next civil rights movement." I'm like, "Y'all, don't give me those titles. Don't define what's happening right now. We can talk about that in 25 years from now." Mm. Like, I just don't I don't know. I don't know how to quantify this. I don't know how to quantify these difficult conversations. I hope a listener goes home or I hope a listener, this is what I want to have happen right now. Yes. Tell me. I want a listener to say to themselves, repeat after me. I'm doing the fucking best I can. Yeah. There are things that I didn't know. And now I do. Hmm. And because I know those things, I'm going to do differently moving forward. I don't exactly know when. Hmm. I don't exactly know how. But I'm raising my hand to do it. Yes. And, and buying and, and buying or whatever. And buying this book, uh, reading it. The first step. And and I need an autograph when I meet you. Um, Jenna Arnold. And yes, I will say buy the book <laughs> because and I feel so like ashamed to be like, buy the book. But hundred percent of the proceeds are being donated to organize uh, organizations representing our children community so incredible incredible you are incredible thank you. Oh, thank you thank you for all that you do and you've done and with with i mean the women's march your book everything you're incredible you really are an inspiration and i'm proud to have this conversation with you thank oh, you that is so kind of you i appreciate that